as we're leading up to Easter, as you've heard a couple times already, uh, we're starting a new series today called Turning Points. And I want to tell you that we are all going somewhere in your life. There, there is a destination that we're going to. There's something, whether you've got lunch plans, whether you've got somewhere you're going on vacation, whether you've got something you want to accomplish, we all have somewhere we're headed towards. And I want to tell you, we're starting this series because turning points are those pivotal moments in our lives where we have decisions to make of are we going to step closer towards where we're heading or go the other direction. And uh, as I was thinking about this series and just to start it out this week, has anybody in the room not ever used the GPS? How, how many people? I'm, okay, two, four, I'm seeing that. It is a, the large majority in the room. If I was putting a percentage on it this morning, it would be like 95% of us have used the GPS to get to where we're going. And uh, I was telling Pam last week, I think if, if an enemy of the United States really wanted to cripple the U.S. And, and spread terror, they would disrupt the GPS service because then people would have no idea where they're going and what was going to happen. And uh, as I was thinking about it this week, uh, how many of you have done your taxes already? This is tax season, it's coming up, and I saw this cartoon and I was grateful that the IRS has never designed a GPS. It says if the IRS made a GPS, it would say, proceed to the intersection following Schedule C, Section 4-6, then turn right if the number of passengers in your vehicle from Form B-22 is greater than the number of cup holders on Line 15. Come on, you get where it's going with that. Thank God the IRS doesn't make a GPS because none of us would ever get anywhere. But we do use them all the time because we want to go where we're going. We want to get closer. And I saw GPS is so prevalent. The technology is so widespread that they've even started to equip NASCAR cars with GPS. And this, this is what it says all the time. After 0.62 miles, turn left. And then it just says it 500 times in a row. All right, five people laughed. So I'm, I found that funny because I'm a little nerdy. But uh, every, every direction in reality, every direction that a GPS gives us is a turning point in our life. And the reality is I still drive my car. Self-driving cars are not that widespread yet. So all a GPS is doing is it's giving you a direction, and you still get to choose whether or not you're going to follow it. Right. Has anybody ever argued with the GPS? Or said, oh, yeah, it says that way, but I know how to get there. I just picture we're having these arguments in the car, like, GPS is telling me to go. I've been driving since before you were made. Like, yeah, we're, we know how to get there. We, we do these things all the time because it really still is just advice. Or we switch the voice. Anybody switch the voice to the, the English-sounding accent because you don't want the woman sound nagging you? Like, yeah. We do these things all the time because it really is still just advice. And it's a lot like our Christian walk. God gives us directions. He gives us these pivotal moments in our lives. And he says, choose this, go this way, do that. And we still, as free will agents, have a choice to make. Am I going to follow that direction and get closer to where I'm headed? Or am I going to go the other way? And uh, thankfully, our GPSs even help us get back on track when we make a wrong turn. Recalculating is one of the greatest words that nobody ever said before 20, 15 yeah. years ago. And now it's in all, as soon as I said that, all of you thought of that in your head. Recalculating. Isn't it great that God recalculates when we take a wrong turn and we don't go the way we're supposed to? And it's like, he wanted us to do that, but I did that instead. And he is a God of second chances. He really is. And he will use even the mistakes that we make in our lives and the things that we go the wrong direction. He will turn us around and still, I've recalculated. 
Here's a way to get you back on the path that you were supposed to be on. Here's another decision that you get faced with where you get to choose to go the direction I want you to go. And it might not always be the way that we think it should go, but in a GPS, in our walk with God, if we follow the directions, we will eventually get to where we're headed. And it'll, it'll be good. We will enjoy it. I will tell you where God wants us to head is better than anything we could plan for ourselves. Better than any vacation you've got on the books for this summer. Better than any trip you've ever planned. Where God wants us to head is awesome. Jeremiah 29.11 says, I know the plans I have for you. God has a plan. He has somewhere he's taking us. Somewhere he wants us to go. And it has nothing on earth to do with a geographical location. Where, where he wants for us to go has more to do with who we are than where we're going or a location we're at. Uh, in John fourteen six, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was revealing, hey, before, centuries before anybody created a GPS or invented it or thought about it, I already was the way, the truth, and the life for you. And where did he say we were going? Anybody know the other half of that verse? Come on, I got Bible scholars in the room. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Jesus didn't say nobody gets into heaven. He said nobody comes to the Father. Sometimes we reduce it in our Americanized version of religion. We say, oh, heaven is the big answer. But where Jesus said is the place, the destination that our hearts should be set on is the Father. Because wherever the Father is, is where heaven is. Heaven could be in this place this morning if the presence of God is here. And Jesus says, I'm the only way to get to the Father. That is my goal for your life. That's where I'm heading you. And if you want to go there, you will follow my way and my truth and walked in my life. In, in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about we're being transformed into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory is what it says. I think too many times in our Christian walk, we need to be more concerned with the how than the what. Let me explain that. How many of you have ever asked God or asked another person or a pastor or somebody you respected, what does God want me to do right now? Come on, if we're honest, we've all asked that at some point. What, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What's the main thing? Where, what should I be putting my hands to? And I think sometimes God is much more interested if we would ask the how question. Instead of what do you want me to do, Lord, how do you want me to be? Come on, in whatever I do, I think that's what God is more interested in is the how am I doing it? Who am I looking like while I'm doing it? More than the particulars of the what. Because how many of you know God is amazing? He can accomplish the what no matter what. That sounds funny. I put that on a t-shirt. He can accomplish the what no matter what. He will take care of getting the stuff done. What he's after in our lives is who we are and how we're doing it. As, as I'm doing whatever I think God's asking me to do, am I loving my neighbor along the way? Am I helping the poor? Am I believing for people to get healed like we saw this morning? There are all kinds of things that God is much more after that than the particulars of what am I doing right now. And I think that would behoove us as Christians to continue to ask God that how question much more than the what question. Yeah, Pam, Pam just looked at me because I actually used the word behoove in the middle of a sermon. Uh, holy cow. Um, Pastor Chris, you're not that old, but the how is more important than the what. That's where I'm going with that. And uh, I think we are confronted every day with hundreds of decisions. 
and turning points in our lives. And, and some of them are bigger than others. How many of you know that? There are decisions that are small and there are decisions that are big. And we make them, sometimes we make them without even thinking about them during the day. Think about this list of, of things that we decide and, and see if you can weed out which ones are the little decisions and which ones are the big decisions. What should I eat for breakfast? What should I wear today? Should I quit my job today? All these things that we might ask ourselves. Do I want to go for a walk? It's Sunday. Should I go to church today? Who should I vote for? How many of you know that? That affects a national turning point. Some, sometimes the decisions we make and the turning points in our lives really do affect the people around us, not just ourselves. Who should I vote for? Should I, should I stop in that bar for a drink on the way home? Should I go to the Pirates game tonight? Shouldn't I invite my neighbor to Easter service? Come on, there's a whole list of things that if we go through it, some of those decisions on that list are nothing. They're, they're inconsequential. It doesn't matter if you go to Burger King or McDonald's after church. I don't think God's worked up about it. But it, it may affect somebody's eternity if you decide whether or not to share the gospel with them or invite them to service or come to a life group with me. Some decisions are small, some decisions are big. Take a minute, just think, what's the biggest decision you've made this week? And did we ask God to be present in the middle of it? Did it affect the people around us or just myself? Some decisions don't matter a whole lot, but some really do. And those are the the pivotal things in our lives that really are turning points that affect, am I going to step closer to what God has in mind for me and the destination I have, or am I going to walk the other direction and need some recalculating to happen in my life? So Jesus was on his way somewhere. And we're remembering it this season. If, if you look at the, the logo for this series, uh, Jesus' journey that he was on included rejoicing, some suffering, included death, and ultimately a resurrection. When I say the logo, it's down in the left-hand corner, not the guy that's the big decisions. Are. Come on, that, that logo is the palm from Palm Sunday. There was rejoicing on Jesus' journey. There's a crown of thorns. There was suffering involved with it. There was death on a cross that happened. And ultimately, he was on his way to the resurrection to prove to the world that he had conquered death once and for all, that he was King, Messiah, and Savior like we sang about this morning. And I think as we go along this, um, we're going to look at some times in Jesus' life where he was confronted with some turning points or some major decisions. And what can we learn out of it? How did it affect our lives? And right off the bat, I want to read Luke 9.51 because this this tells a lot about Jesus and how he was in this journey, what he was going to walk through and what he knew about it and what we can learn from it. In Luke 9.51, it says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is a fascinating verse to me because this is Luke 9. If you haven't read Luke in a while, Luke 9 is not the end of the story. There's 15 more chapters in Luke. He does a whole bunch of stuff. He, he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. And this verse says, when it came time for Jesus to ascend to heaven... He resolutely set out to Jerusalem. Did you ever think about that? That's one of those verses you just read over and you don't even contemplate it. But Jesus looked at things, when it says ascend to heaven, I think Jesus always had the end in mind. He knew where he was going. He knew what the journey was going to imply. As far off as it was, he was ready to walk through it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what was going to be involved and he still was on his way. And and as far as Luke was concerned, hey, it's in motion now. 
the, the time for him to ascend might as well already be here because there's no stopping it. The momentum's here. Jesus is resolutely set towards Jerusalem. He's going to do these things, prove who he is. He's going to go to the cross, and he is going to ascend back to the right hand of the Father. And it says the time drew near. If you, if you study that phrase in the Greek, it implies that enough is enough. It's the time has actually filled up. And what, what time was that? The time of living in obscurity. When Jesus was out in the countryside, in the backside of the desert, uh, living just with his friends and family and doing these miracles in these other places, it was time for his public ministry to begin, for him to step out of the shadows and show that he was who he said he was. And I think there are some turning points in our life and some decisions that we get to, there are moments where we need to say enough is enough. This is the time to take a step forward. It's the time to move into what God has for me. It's, it's time to come out of the shadows and be who God has asked me to be. And Jesus knew what he was sent to do and how he was sent to do it. And it was time to step out. And when he did it, it says he was resolutely set. He was firmly decided. Nothing was going to shake him. We need to be resolute in our walk with God to know that nothing can be shaken. I, I am, I am a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so neither should I be able to be shaken. There is something that we have to be firm and say, okay, I'm not going to let anything get in my way of becoming who God has asked me to be. And he saw that end in mind. He knew the journey was going to include the cross, but he also knew it was going to include the resurrection and ascending back to heaven. And I think in God's economy, endings are simply new beginnings. I'm stepping out of the shadows, leaving the countryside behind. It's not the end. It's not time to mourn. It's the start of something new. Do you know that Jesus could even look at the cross that way? That ending, which to us as human beings, like, wow, you're going to die. That seems pretty final to me. I'm not sure what's going to happen or how you're going to pull this off, Jesus. That ending was simply a beginning. We're, we're sitting in this room today because of that ending being a new beginning. We have a new life because Jesus' life ended on that cross and then he picked it up again three days later. Come on, nothing ever ends permanently in the kingdom of God. It simply is the next phase. It steps us into a new beginning of what God has for us. And I will tell you this morning, the road isn't always easy. The journey may not be easy, but it is worth it. What he has in mind for us is better than we could ever imagine. What Jesus saw, come on, can you even imagine that with me? To think about, I, am go, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go to that town. I'm going to preach. I'm going to heal people. I'm going to do some miracles. It's going to be awesome to share the good news. And then they're going to hate me and kill me for it. Right. Right. Can you imagine knowing that before you went into it? They're going to beat me. Right. All my friends are going to desert me. They're going to nail me to a cross and crucify me. And yet he still, yeah. come on, the love that he had for us in spite of knowing all that was going to happen, he still said, I'm willing to walk this journey. There's joy set before me. That's more, it's unspeakable joy, like we sing about sometimes. It's joy that we can't imagine. And Jesus said, I'm willing to do that for you. Man, I think he was faced with decisions all along the way, though. It, he didn't start his life. He wasn't born just leading into that week in Jerusalem with the Passover. There were decision points all throughout Jesus' life that he made that led up to that moment. And I think, I don't know how you feel, but I've, I believe 
that if making the wrong decision wasn't an option for Jesus, then he wasn't really like us. Come on, sometimes we think, oh, well, Jesus, he's perfect. Of course he was going to make the right decision every time. Do you think he wrestled with those things at all? What, what were the great drops of blood that he was sweating in the garden? Do you think that's evidence of wrestling with the decision? Do you think telling Peter, hey, put away that sword, I could call 10, 12 legions of angels down at a moment's notice and deliver me out of this. Do you think that didn't go through his mind as a real option? Come on, if, if Jesus had no struggles with making those decisions and was just perfect every time because, oh, I'm, I'm God, look, I'm perfect, I'm going to do the right thing every time, then that bar is way too high for me to ever think about jumping over. But if Jesus really was just like you and I, then that takes it out of the realm of, oh, I could never do that to, you know what? I can make some choices in life. I can do the things that Jesus did because I'm filled with the same spirit he was filled with. I'm, I'm walking and being formed into his image. I can do those things because he's with me. Here's a verse for you. We, it's a familiar verse that we read often, but in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Look at this verse. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. I can't even fathom that, that the king of glory would step out of that realm and say, I'm going to come be just like you. Knowing that Jesus was human gives me great comfort. I don't know about you, but I read that verse and I'm like, man, if you could do it, there's hope for me. Come on. Too many people think, oh, he did what he did because he was God. And Philippians says, he laid aside his God powers. It's like Superman taking off his cape and wearing a kryptonite necklace or something. I don't know how you want to picture it this morning, but he laid aside his God powers to come live as a human being so that he could be an example for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Look, and look at that verse and what he went through and what he endured. The keys to making the right decisions were the same ones as us. He was a servant. He humbled himself, it said. He became obedient to everything that the Father wanted him to do. He made the right decisions, and it got him closer to where he wanted to go. And those decisions ultimately brought him closer to his destination, which included the cross, included the resurrection, and uh, as we're looking at this series, as we lead up to Easter, I'm just going to pick out a couple moments from Jesus's life where he was faced with some turning points or some decisions and how it affects us and what happened. There's a great story I want to look at before we close today in Luke chapter two that should give comfort to every parent in this room. Jesus was away on a trip with his family. How many of you have taken your family on a trip so you can relate? And how many of you have watched your kids like a hawk? Because, man, we're in an unfamiliar place. I don't know where they're going to be. Uh, our big trip every year, we, we seem to end up in Erie all the time with my dad and my mom. Because my dad liked to fish. And I remember going to all the same places. The bait shop where he would get the worms. And I'd be like, ooh, if you put that on the hook for me, I'll fish a little bit. <laughs> and all the fishermen, I just went down in their estimation a little bit. But I remember these places we went to and the, and the familiar places. But I remember one thing is there's every time I turn around, there's my mom or dad watching me 
What, what are you doing? What are you getting into? Don't go over there and talk to those people. We don't know them. Don't touch that stuff. That's dirty. Come on. My parents were there all the time watching over me. Well, Jesus' parents, I would imagine if they were like us, were doing the same thing. Man, we've got to watch him, keep an eye on him. He's just a little kid. And I don't know, somehow if my mom and dad had lost me, I picture panic setting in. But somehow... I don't think it's quite on the same scale as if you had been entrusted with the Son of God wrapped in flesh. Care for him, nurture him, raise him up, help him to grow and to learn, watch over him. If my mom and dad lost me, that's that's horrible, that's a tragedy, they'd feel awful. But can you imagine? I've been taking care of the Son of God and he's gone. I... I have no idea the panic that set in that moment, but Jesus' family had gone to Jerusalem, which was kind of like our Erie trip every year, except they went there every year for Passover and to worship in the temple. And uh, when he was about 12, they left to go back to Nazareth, and it said they were a day away from Jerusalem, and they realized he wasn't with them. Maybe You don't have to raise your hand, but have any parents ever done that? Like, oh, we drove separate cars today, and I I thought you had them in the car. This actually happened to a family at our church one time. When when we were in the library building in Carnegie, they got home, and they had driven separately to church, and they were like, hey, where's Patrick? (laughs) And the mom said, I thought he got in the car with you. And the dad said, I thought he got in the car with you. They drive all the way back to the church, and there was Patrick sleeping in a row. The ushers had turned off the lights, put everything away, and walked out the door and locked up. (laughs) And I think maybe a moment like that happened. Maybe Mary thought Joseph had loaded Jesus up, and Joseph thought Mary had him, and they get a day away, and they realize, oh, it's time for bed, or it's dinner time, whatever it was. Jesus isn't here. And that moment, I believe very real people, come on, Mary and Joseph, I believe they felt the same panic that you and I would feel if we were in the department store and our kid had wandered off or we couldn't see him anymore. And so what do they do? They turn around. Come on, they're traveling with a whole caravan of people, their relatives, their friends, they're on their way back to Nazareth. They turn around. We got to go back. Can, come on. I picture this argument. Like, I, I know how this conversation would go. I picture Mary going in, Joseph, we have to go back right now. And he's like, oh, come on. He's, he'll catch up or I don't even know. They're, they're upset about it and they have to turn around and go all the way back to Jerusalem. And they traveled a whole day back there. And it actually says in Scripture, once they got back to Jerusalem, three days later is when they found Jesus. What did that look like? What did that feel like? Hey, we, we stopped by Camels R Us to look at a, a new camel for the ride home. Maybe he's still there. Like, you know, wh- where did they go? They, oh, we went to that restaurant that serves the great falafel. Maybe Jesus went back there to get... Like, for three days, they're looking for Jesus. And then somebody thinks, oh, well, yeah, we, we stopped by the temple to take our offering and our sacrifice there. I, I guess we could go back and check the temple. And that's where they found Jesus. And this is how it goes in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. They found Jesus. I I just picture that. Oh, there he is. He says, why are you searching for me? Come on, he's there talking with these religious leaders and debating them and opening the scriptures. And Jesus is like, he's surprised. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? If Joseph was a human dad, I picture like, son of God or not, get your butt on that camel. You're in a world of hurt. 
Like, I don't know how that went, but that's how I picture it because they were real people. And they searched for three days after having to turn around and travel a day back. And it says, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. But then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. I love that because when Jesus says, why were you searching for me? I don't think he was saying it as, don't you know who I am? You ever see those people, celebrities or politicians or some big wig in the city, like the cop pulls them over or they go into a restaurant and they want service and it's like, don't you know who I am? If anybody in all of eternity could ever play the don't you know who I am card, pretty sure it's God himself come in flesh. Don't you know who I am? And Jesus didn't do that. After he had that conversation with his parents, it says he, he was obedient to them and went back with them to where they needed to go. And it says in that verse that his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Do you think it only mentions Mary treasuring those things in her heart because Joseph was having a cow? Like, he's, he's upset. Get in there, pack your stuff. I, I just picture Joseph having a vein popping out on the side of his head while he's yelling at Jesus. But Mary's standing over there. Oh, he's in his father's house. Let's think about what that really means. So what, what can we learn from that verse and what Jesus... Come on, that was a turning point for Jesus. He could have said, hey, leave me alone. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I know who I am now. I've discovered in the Holy Spirit told me and in Scripture I've had the revelation I am the Son of God. He could have done all those things, but this was a turning point in his life. This was a pivotal decision for him. And he said, yes, you, you are my mother and father here on earth, the authority that I've been set under. I'm going to obey and go back with you. And Jesus' obedience caused him to grow. Come on, that's what that verse says. He grew in favor and stature with God and man. If Jesus needed to grow in wisdom and stature and favor, do you think maybe we do too? You better believe it. And the key to him growing in those things, it says he was obedient and walked with them. Our obedience opens that door for us to grow too. Turning points are the moments in our lives that can propel our spiritual growth. If we make the right decisions, if we obey what we see in the word, then there is going to be growth that happens in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And we've already said this morning, the good news is, even if you don't get it right in that moment, come on, it could be a pivotal decision in your life that's going to affect things in a big way. Even if we don't get it right, God will still work with those things to get us back on track where we need to go. There, there may be a moment in your life that you're thinking of right now that, man, I really messed that one up. I don't know how God could ever redeem that. And that is exactly who he is and what he does. He is a redeemer. He's, he's actually for our success more than you could possibly think or imagine. Come on, he is for our success more than you could possibly think or imagine. I love my son, he races all the time. Sometimes he wins. Sometimes he doesn't. And when he doesn't win, it's, it's not like, oh, it's the end of the world. Let's just give up. I'll never set foot on a track again. My parents won't love me anymore. You know what that is? That's an opportunity to say, man, I'm going to get back on track for where I need to be. Mm. All right. Here's what I want us to do this week. And this is a simple one. 
I want us to tell somebody that God is for them. You know, there, there are people out in the world that have no concept of that. They have no, no grasp of the idea that God is actually for me. They're thinking, oh, well, maybe he's upset at me. Maybe he's angry at me. I'm the wayward son. And they have no idea God is rooting for them. He's for them more than they would even think to be for themselves sometimes. And I believe that we've been given part of that message that we carry. We've been given the opportunity to let people know, do you know that God is for you? Mom went up this week to pray for her sister. Her sister got a a diagnosis that they're they're worried about. And she's going to have to go get some more tests and maybe some surgery. And and mom went up in the middle of that to, to let her know, do you know that God is for you? He wants to heal you. I'm, I'm here to pray for you because I love you and, and I believe God is a healer today. Do you know there are people that need to hear that? I don't, and I don't know, my, my aunt has had ups and downs with God. She's had some good experiences. She's had some bad experiences. She's been walking one direction or another her whole life. But in that moment, mom came to remind her, God's for you. He loves you so much. He wants you to encounter his presence in a real and tangible way. And that's what we carry to the world around us. So our action item this week is tell somebody that God is for them. And we're going to take a minute to practice it right now. Because this is a safe place to practice. Everybody in the room probably already knows that, but it's good to hear it again. So I want us to stand up and I want us to find somebody that's right next to you. And just practice letting them know God is for them. What, what does that sound like coming out of our mouths? What does that sound like to let somebody know, hey, God's got good plans and good things for you? Yeah, take about 30 seconds to do that. Just, just find somebody right next to you and say, God is for you. All right. How many of you needed to be reminded, maybe, that God is for you? It's, sometimes it's just good to hear that and be reminded of that and to know that, that God is on our side, that he's not interested in us failing. He will use our failures and get us out of that point, but he is interested in us succeeding in life. He is interested in developing his character and nature in us and letting the world see him through our lives. He is for you. And uh, as I close today, I wanted to pray for us uh, just to know that, have that grounded in us. And also, if you are facing any decisions, since we're talking about turning points and decisions that we're making, I'm going to pray for God to give you wisdom and for you to know and have the courage and the strength to make whatever decisions you're facing. So let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Jesus, we thank you for the name that you've given us. And we ask right now that you would let it be part of the foundation of who we are, that we would know that you love us and you're for us. Even as we sang about this morning, that you are a good, good father. And Lord, I ask right now for anybody in this room that's facing a decision. Lord, whether it seems small or big to the people around them, Lord, I ask right now that you would give wisdom, that you would give understanding and courage to make the decision that moves us closer to what you have for us. God, let us have the the wisdom and insight to see what the right thing to do is. Lord, let us have discernment to see even beyond the natural parts of the decision that need to be made. Lord, I thank you that you are with us to order and direct our steps. 
God, we honor you. We say that we love you this morning. We thank you for your presence with us. We ask that you would continue to move and impact our lives, even as we leave this place. Let us be living testimonies to the people around us of your goodness and your glory. And we just honor you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.